Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with a very special guest on a very special episode. I have with me this week Mike Sly Flourish Shea. Hey Mike, thanks for joining me this week. Hey Sean, it's great to be here. This is awesome. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Teos is swimming in the Mediterranean or some such thing. So we, we are going his to... His Yes, exactly. Who wouldn't right. want to be here right as the great Marv Levy of this the Buffalo Bills? I'm having said. fun. Are you having fun? Because I'm, I'm having, having fun. fun. I am having right. fun. And let's, let's just jump right into more fun by going to our listener corner. Uh, our first question comes from Falcon... Toot bag. Yes, toot bag, tweet bag. Toot bag. I just, I just, I really came on the show just so I could say the word toot bag. Toot bag. Well, you could say it several times. Just shout out toot bag at random in the middle of the show. <laughs> like, like I just did. Like you just did. <laughs> but uh, before we, we, we toot, let's go to uh, Patreon <laughs> and, and to Falcon Neal, who says, 4E split the D&D player base with Pathfinder garnering a community who preferred 3.5's style and complexity. This year, a subset of angry online players has expressed a desire to leave the WotC ecosystem. Is that splinter viable if they don't coalesce around a particular competitor? Is there a minimum audience size needed for an alternative system to be long-term successful? How much of a system's success is owed to the ease of being able to find others playing the same game system you already know? Mike, I think you liked this question, so I'm going to let I do. you start. Yeah, talk to me. Sure. Uh, oh, there's so many. There's so many facets. It's 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 like a twenty sided die of a mm -hmm. question. It's got a right. lot of different sides to consider. Via viability being kind of a, a I think a key a key focal point of of this whole thing and the viability of other systems. So kind of getting past the idea of like people being angry at wizards and moving to other systems and stuff like that. There's also this like how for for a completely different system, how what what does viability mean? And I bring up the idea that, like, if there's one human being left on the planet with a copy of Ironsworn, it's viable, right? Because mm -hmm. Ironsworn is a solo playable game. You only need one human being who's interested in playing in a copy of the book, and it's, you know, kind of viable. I don't know that somebody would refer to that as, as viability, right? That any, any RPG where you can find, you know, whatever number of players plus one GM willing to run it is, is viable. And I, 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 I talked about this in, 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 on other platforms as well that like i think viability means a lot less than we think it's not like world of warcraft or you know any kind of online game where like if the company decides they're not going to maintain the servers anymore that 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 game is dead which can definitely happen we don't really have to worry about that as much as long as we have a book and we're willing to play and we're willing to find players but it can be tricky to find players when i when i have brought this idea up that i, I didn't think popularity really mattered that much i got a lot of people say yeah it absolutely does because like if i want to play blades in the dark it's way harder for me to find players to play Blades in the Dark than it is to play find players to play 5e D&D. And that can be true. But then, so I, I asked, I actually put up a poll on, on a, my YouTube channel and said, hey, how do you get you know, people to play other games? And they're all like, you ask, right? Like, ask your friends to play another game. And like 90-some people said, like, that, the way to play that is, is to just ask, ask people to, uh, to, to play a different game. And they will. So I think a lot of it is like, do you have a group who is willing to try other games is probably the thing to aim for. That if you can, if you can put together a group and get people that are happy to be together, enjoying these stories that we tell and sharing in, these, in this fun, you could probably say like, hey guys, how would you want to try Shadow Dark for a session? You know, what if we wanted to try Shadow Dark just for a couple of sessions? I know we love our 5e game. I love 5e, but I'd like to try a couple of sessions of Shadow Dark. If, they're, if they've been with you a while, they'll probably be willing to, to, to go. 
And that doesn't mean you have to do like this full scale switch over to another system. Like I'm, you know, leaving one completely and going to another one. You can just try some things out. And I've done this. I've done this with my groups. I've done, I have multiple groups and all of them have been willing for, to try, to try other systems. So I think getting that initial group together, maybe you got to go aim for a more popular platform, mm-hmm. you know, a more popular system. But once you have a group that's been together and playing for a while, they're there for you more than they're there for the game. And I think that that's yeah. the, that's where the switch happens, right? If, mm-hmm. if people are just looking for a game to play and you're like, I want to run Honey Heist and no one wants to play Honey Heist, right? Except they all want to play 5e D&D. Well, that's because they're not looking for Honey Heist. They're looking for, you know, the system. But once they're like, oh, I like Sean. I want to play with Sean. And Sean's like, hey, how would you, you know, I'm, I'm a little tired. And I didn't have time to prep. Can I, how about a game of Honey Heist instead? They're like, sure, Sean, give it a go. I want to be a bear that goes on a heist. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that real question of like, what does viability mean to you? And I think we each get to kind of determine that. Like nobody gets to. There's no ISO standard for viability for RPGs. Like we get to we get to kind of decide whether one is popular or not. One one tiny little agenda I want to throw in here yeah. is you can be fully supportive of Five E and not support Wizards of the Coast. And I'm I'm still support Wizards of the Coast. I like Wizards of the Coast. I'm still going to buy their products. I'm not. I'm you know for those who love them, I'm not knocking them. But I know that there are people out there who that enough has gone on with Wizards of the Coast over the last six months that they really don't want to associate with D&D and Wizards of the Coast specifically. And 5e is like Linux now, right? There's lots of different ways to engage in 5e. There's, you know, three versions of 5e that are going to be out there for you to try more, and more. And there's so there's, you know, thousands of supplements that you can use for 5e and never and never really have to pick any one company, even if you don't like it could be anybody else, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, 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 is still I, viable. Yeah, I think that that's a good point in that Pathfinder was viable specifically in a perfect storm sort of way because it wasn't we need you to change to this new game we're making. It was you can stay and keep playing the game you've been playing without doing anything. Yeah, it's a new book. Yeah, tweaks here and there. But it's basically here's here's third edition. You keep playing it. That made Pathfinder super viable. It also was a perfect storm because Paizo had experience making things. They had experience making good adventures. They had experience creating magazines. So they were a good group to be carrying on this third edition game. They also had funding from Wizards of the Coast. Uh, People (laughs) forget that. People forget that Paizo uh, was basically... A, a farm team and I'm going to give a sports reference right they, they were the baseball farm team yeah I don't know what you uh, I don't know what you're talking yeah, about of course of course you don't uh, yeah. but you know, they had a license for to do Dungeon and Dragon magazine that they were supposed to pay a licensing fee and from what I've heard they rarely did or they didn't <laughs> they didn't the Wizards was like oh don't worry about it don't yeah so like Wizards was funding this company that ended up so it was it was perfect now get now you're going to be competing if you make a fifth edition clone if you make a tales from the valley and if you make one of those things you will likely be competing against wizards of the coast in the same arena mm-hmm. which is both good and bad it's good because there may not be enough of a difference between all of these different clones that a reasonably adept player dm can't just say well i'm going to buy this supplement yes it's for this other 5e system, but I can tweak it. I know what I'm doing. And so it's not really competing. It could be all the same. You're still swimming in the same pool. It's not any different than uh, 
right? What's happening now? If you buy a cobalt press supplement, uh, you know, you buy some of their Midgard stuff, you can take it and you can do whatever you want with it in your regular 5e campaign. And it could be close enough that you could do that anyway. So there's no real competition, which makes it viable. What wouldn't be viable is if you make a completely different game and you don't have all of those things as a business, not not as a consumer, but I as think a Kelsey from Kelsey from Shadow Dark RPG with her one point three million dollars might disagree with you. Right, <laughs> like, for sure. <laughs> I, 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 a, didn't, yeah. I didn't say won't be viable. I said may oh. not be viable. Yeah, that's true. Sure. May, but may not. Yeah, anything and, anything may not be viable. <laughs> right, and anything and anything may be viable. Yeah. It all depends on if you are willing to pay and what your business model. See, I'm talking about on the business side of things now, yeah. uh, and and a lot of it comes down to. Are the customers willing to pay what needs to be paid in order to keep the business going that will be creating what you're creating? Uh, so will it be viable in that way? Probably, but who knows? Uh, we won't know until one company may thrive, another company may crumble. And, and we, we don't know until all of it plays out in terms of what each individual entity is creating, how they're marketing it where they position themselves with the what customers. their costs are is a big one and what their costs you know, are. And, and again, I'll bring up like, like Cobalt press with tales of the Valiant. I mean, he's got, I think more than 10 full-time employees or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's now, yeah. it's a decent sized company. I'm pretty sure Kelsey who, who runs arcane library and, and mm -hmm. did shadow dark RPG. I think it's still just her. Right. <laughs> All right. I don't think she's got any full-time employees. Right. One of those can sustain a lot more uh, yes. because their costs are so much lower. Exactly. Um, you know, than than another. So yeah. Yep. And 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 yet again, I mean, in that case, and I'm 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 super excited for Tales of the Valiant. I love it. Shadow Dark RPG actually had more people support it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's pretty interesting how that's all playing out. Yeah. It, and I don't it, think we could really guess. Right. You know, I, I don't think we'll know what the answer right. is. If anybody are. out there knows the answer, please let me know right now. <laughs> please email us. <laughs> so so right. You you could yeah email the the. Uh, the show hit us on Twitter. Let yeah. us know what the future holds, so we can we can get out in front of it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, the other question we have this week is from Brian Decker via Mastodon. So this is a toot for you, Mike. Toot. What, what do toot you bag. think are some common rules of good adventure design? I have in mind the design equivalent to "Don't split the party." And better yet, have you written or seen an adventure that successfully broke or subverted the rules? Uh, this is a, always a hard question for me because for me, it's like, how do you make a good pizza? Uh, can, I, can I ask one clarifying question? Sure. To, to scope our, are we talking about a published adventure that like one, like a writer who's making a published adventure they plan to sell to others? Or are we talking about a GM who is putting together their own adventure for their own group? I would say yes. Both of these? I, I, I think both. I think both you have to, okay. you sort of have to answer both. And in some cases it will overlap. And in some cases, obviously it will be very different as you and gotcha. I both know as yeah. people who've <laughs> created, <done> both. <laughs> yeah, who've created those. But yeah, you know, a, a good adventure could be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so as I answer this, I'm going to separate adventure design from encounter design. Obviously, adventures are built from encounters, but we could spend a whole show just talking about encounter design. So I think I'm you gonna, have. Yeah, I'm sure I have more than one. 
<laughs> uh, so, so let's just talk about adventures. First thing is understand the scope and the purpose of what you are trying to accomplish with what you are designing. Are you writing an adventure that is an integral part of a campaign that's in progress? Are you creating this as a one shot that someone is going to play once, get a feel for whatever you're highlighting, and then leave? And if you're highlighting something in this one-shot adventure, what is it that you're highlighting? Are you highlighting a certain rule set? Are you highlighting certain character options? Because those things you are definitely going to want to then make an important aspect of that adventure. Uh, with me so far, Mike? I'm with you. With you. So anything to add that to that in terms of scope, in terms of purpose uh, when you design an adventure? I mean, I think so. I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you finish. Oh, I'm gonna let you finish. I'm gonna let okay. you finish. Teo Seventy is the greatest podcaster ever, but I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> but I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you finish. All right. Yeah. So because <laughs> if I, I have a, I have a whole different scope of my view on this. Okay, that's cool. Uh, yeah. So for for the once you know the purpose, then who are you designing it for? If you are designing it for your home game, you know the party. So you can design it to hit all of the highlights of the characters and the players in your party. Do they love puzzles? They want a puzzle every week? Okay, we're going to give them a puzzle. <laughs> Time Do to find they... a different party. Exactly. Do they love role-playing? <laughs> and they, they only want a couple combats, but they want to spend the time role-playing. Then you're going to design for those. If you don't know the p makeup of the party that will be playing because you're designing it for a publication... You have some tricks you can use. You can design for some of the tropes. So you can design for the sneaky character who wants to stealth around and investigate. You can design for the righteous character who wants to be doing good no matter what. You can design for those sorts of things. One of the greatest things that Wizards did for 5th edition that they I don't even know if they realized it was great for adventure designers were the factions. The Zentarum, the... Because what that gave you was adventurer types that you could then write adventures for, even if you didn't know uh, who the players would be. You've got your dark, uh, creepy, profit-driven Zentarum. You have your uh, holier-than-thou uh, group. You've got the... The leaders, the rulers who just care. <laughs> the rich, the rich suck ups with yes, the Lord's and Alliance. Lord's Alliance. The, the upper 1%. Right. <laughs> and, and that was wonderful for an adventure designer to then say, okay, I could put something in for each of these factions. The hippie Harpers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so that that's cool. And then what I do when I create adventures is I just think in terms of scenes. I, I And I want a scene to begin and to end, and I want to know what is supposed to happen during that scene. What questions are we trying to answer? What goals are we trying to reach? Uh, if you know those things, then you can put in anything that will block that action from happening, to block the players from achieving their goals, block the uh, resolution from happening, whether that's a monster, whether that's skill checks, whether that's role-playing, you can put that all in there. Then once you have all your scenes laid out, you have to just remember that you have to give a path from one scene to the next. It doesn't have to be railroad, but it has to be how do the players know to go from the merchant to the noble? Uh, it, what clues are they given or are they told just to go there? Make sure that those transitions work. 
uh, and then think in terms of beets. Beets is a word that's overused, not the vegetable. Uh, beets is a term that's overused because it can mean lots of different things. But you can think in terms of beets in the following ways, whether it's emotional notes. So is it hope? Is it fear? Is it, uh, is it rising action? Is it falling action? Those sorts of things. Beats are plot points. So the things that happen that move the story forward. Beats are pillars of play. So you could have an exploration encounter, a combat encounter, role-playing encounter, or a mixture of all of those. And then beats also can be used to show game mechanical things like the beat is going to be rising action and then we have a rest. We can have a short rest here, we can have a long rest there, or the styles of play. Uh, so if you have players that want really brutal uh really brutal, violent scenes of action. You can do those. Then then break it up just slightly with something, with a lighter uh, scene, maybe with some role-playing, maybe with some dice rolling, but not combat to, to get that style of play active and then move on to a different one. Uh, the last thing is I don't have a big list of do's and don'ts. Uh, because as soon as you say do this or don't do this, then it's good reasons to. Th- there'll be a reason not to. So, <laughs> right. right if you if you go online and just do a random search for you know how how to create a good adventure, you get the same sort of advice. Make a great plot hook. Yes, sure, but if the plot hook is too great, sometimes it can distract from the actual adventure. Uh, I've seen that happen. Uh, a compelling plot is great, and, unless it isn't. Uh, uh, a particular structure I've seen follow the three act structure, follow the four corner structure. You know, there's all these, uh, all this advice that's great until it's not right. The setting, Oh, it should be wild and fantastical, which can then distract from like the, the hard line story that you're trying to tell. So every, you know, everything could be good. Everything isn't necessarily good though. So I I don't follow this list of do's and don'ts. Take it away, Mike. Um, so I'm going to split mine into I think the same way you did. I'll I'll flip the, the flip the order of like published adventures versus homebrew adventures. I think there's kind of two different two different things. And I'm going to take I'm going to kind of pull back a little bit uh, from you know open the the aperture a little bit. But like for published adventures, I think it's just so critical that you really sit down and say, what am I doing for the person who bought this product? What, mm-hmm. how am I making their life easier? GMs are busy. You know, they want to run a game for their, for their players. What can I do to help them? What material can I give them? What format can I use? What style can I use? It's, you're not telling a story to them. You're giving them materials. You've said it before. Like this is instruction manuals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is technical writing. Mm-hmm. And our goal is to try to really give, material that they can't get on their own that they don't have the time for they don't have the money for you want to give them stuff that really makes their life easy and i and some do it well and some really don't i've done it well and i've also done it very poorly so you know there it's it's a hard thing to do uh something that's been a a, a, something i paid more attention to is like keep your text short Mm -hmm. like just really cut down the amount of your your word count as much as you can on these things. Uh, I was running two adventures for two different groups. I was running Light of Zaraxxus from the the Spelljammer box set, Mm -hmm. and I'm running Scarlet Citadel. And both of them are written by tremendous veterans in this industry who've been doing it forever. One of them is really easy to run 
very few words giving you just what you need in order to set the stage still a lot of freedom to let the game go the way you want it to go but like i i hardly had to prep it the other one has every word in the you know every word possible is is put in the adventure and it's really hard to parse mm-hmm. it's hard to process i've read it and then i'm at the game table and i'm like what's in this room again and the room description is three pages long yeah. and you're like oh you know keep it keep it really brief you know in the words of uh the the, the emperor of austria and amadeus like there there is such a thing as too many notes yeah. right too too many notes um, and then, and then one I talk about, which I think is actually useful for both publish and, and, and homebrew adventures. And I've seen some organized play adventures too, that have done this well is try to build a situation. You talked about setting up a series of scenes and there are lots of adventures that way. And, and I, you know, I, I agree that that is definitely a good adventure model. Another adventure model is also building a situation mm-hmm. where you're setting up a location, you're setting up the situation, going at the location, you're filling it with NPCs, you're filling it with monsters. You're, you're giving enough information to the GM to tell them how it evolves, depending on what the characters do. And then the characters hit it however they're going to hit it and i really feel like some of the best adventures like my my favorite is ravenloft right i love castle ravenloft and castle ravenloft is really fun and you can run it over and over again because it's a situation and the players get to decide how they're going to engage with it you have a plot that's going on you have things that they can do but it isn't this you know kind of linear series of scenes it's a whole different avenue and i really enjoy adventures that are written that way too it's interesting because light as rexus is not written that way like you know i love i loved it but it is also a series of scenes Mm-hmm. Um, then for homebrew adventures, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, figuring out exactly, I had to get a prop, you know, there's a book, uh, available that actually helps people with their, uh, um, you know, with, with filling out published event or filling out their homebrew adventures. And, and I, I still agree with it. I still agree with my own work. So, you know, I have eight steps. I follow the eight steps when I'm prepping my adventure. It's a nice framework. It's not the perfect framework for everybody, but it's a nice framework that I use that helps me stay focused on the things that are going to help me run the game. And many other people have come back saying it's helping them too. For, for, and those, that stuff, yeah. for those listening, oh, that was podcast, Return, you didn't see the prop. Return of the Lazy Return Dungeon of Master. The Lazy Dungeon Master. By one Mike Shea. Mike Shea, available at SlyFlourish.com. Yeah. yeah, go to SlyFlourish.com. There you right go. There. So... Um, but like, you know, focusing on the characters is a big one. And you talked about it when you're running a homebrew adventure that you have that opportunity. You know who they are. You know what they want. You can ask them. If you don't know, you can ask them. Hey, you know, you're ca- while sitting around a campfire, what does your character think about the direction they want to take? Right. And then write it down and use it. Right. Use it. Use it then or use it in a future adventure. But you can get that stuff. Where, where's your adventure going to start? Right. What are you going to do? Right. As your players are sitting down, what's the first thing that's going to happen that's going to grab the attention of the players and drag them into the story and, and let things go? And, and then you kind of don't know what might happen after that. Right. You might have some ideas, but it's, it could be fuzzy because now it's the actions of the characters. So then what are the components that you can prepare ahead of time to help the story go whatever direction the characters are going to take it? And that's something that I focus on a lot in this book. Right. I'm not going to get into all of it. We, you, know, you, you know it. You and I have talked about it a million times. But, you know, and that same thing. And then, of course, building those situations. How do you get all the, com- the components together to build that situation and let the players uh, uh, get involved in that situation and navigate it how they want? And what tools are going to use, right? What are, the, what are the specific tools that are going to help you do that improv where it's online? You know, more and more DMs are running games online these days. What are the tools that help you improvise at the table? Uh, a really simple example is like Token Maker, right? There's a, there's a website called Token Maker, and it's so good and so fast. You can build tokens in the middle of a game. So like you don't have to, you know, you could definitely build all the tokens you think you're going to need. But if they're going to fight some weird monsters, like while they're talking about stuff, you could just be in token maker making tokens and then drop them on your map and you're ready to go. So what are those tools that, that help you improvise? I think is a big, uh, a big, a big part about, you know, how to, 
what are the rules and what are the frameworks for, for running homebrew adventures? So those are my thoughts. Yeah, and, and your thoughts and my thoughts are sort of parallel. And I'm going to try to think of the best way to say this. Um, players see stories, RPG stories, D&D stories, through encounters for the most part, right? It's okay, do we have time to rest? Yes or no? Okay, we go and we do the next thing. Right. Whereas game masters think in terms of story for the most part. Okay, mm -hmm. what what's going to happen next? What do I present next? And it's creating stuff for publication is walking that line between helping the game master by creating encounters for them versus what Mike was talking about, which is giving them the tools to create their own encounters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes the audiences are very different for what they want. Right. Yep. There are times when I sit down to run an adventure and I don't want to have to build the encounter. Right. <laughs> especially if it's going to be integral to the story, especially if I want there to be some elegance to the play. If I want some sprinkled clues in Encounter 1 to play out in Encounter 3, 4, and 5, I'm not going to remember that as somebody who's creating it on my own. So I need that sort of help from the creator of the adventure to do that for me, to... to, yeah. to to lay lay out those tracks that I can follow. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't think for a published adventure that you can get away with having like all of the little dishes of components, mm -hmm. and then expect that the DM who's going to run it is going to use them. I actually tried that with Ruins of the Grendel Root. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have a book of adventures called Ruins of the Grendel Root: Ten Adventures, Level One to Five, and in them. I, I first started off by saying it's going to be a toolkit, adventure toolkits, that they are going to be like locations and monsters mm -hmm. and NPCs and situations, and they're all separate, and you sort of piece them together. And I had, I had early feedback from people that were like, why don't you just tell me what to do? Like, you clearly know what the answer is. Why are you making me go through all this work? And I was like, whoa, work. That is not what I want you to be doing is work. Right. right? So I changed them, and now they are sort of like specific scenes. Now, those scenes could happen in lots of different ways and in right. lots of different order, but mm -hmm. they still exist. If you go to this location and you go to this area this is what might be going on here and this is what might be going on here if circumstances had changed because of this other thing right and that's and that's kind of laid out yeah yeah and and that's you can still have encounters even if you are creating a dungeon like or castle yeah. ravenloft you can go through it in any order but even but the 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 locations that you're setting up are ripe for a certain kind of encounter generally yeah. Or or a couple different variations, but you want the you want the DMs to be able to look at it and understand, okay, this is how I'm going to run it because this makes sense in terms of everything that's come before. And the players will both expect it but also be surprised by it. That sort of the dual thing that you try to do when you're writing fiction is make it make logical sense while still surprising and delighting the reader. Um, and that sort of thing needs to play through uh, when you design an adventure or it, it hopefully does when you design an adventure. Uh, any, anything I, I else? Agree. Yeah. Toot, toot bag. Yeah. And any other thing to add for, no. uh, for Mike? Nope. No, that sounds good. Okay. Well, uh, thank you to Brian and to Falcon Neil for those questions. 
Now we will move on to news because we have news this week. We're not going to dig too deep into some of the news because <laughs> we're going to hold ourselves a, back. Yeah, because the first big thing that happened was the what I'm going to start calling the 5e, 2e D and D playtest packet. <laughs> Number six. I'm going, I'm going with the 2024 D&D refresh. See, 5E2E. 5E2E. 5E2E is nice. There's way four, fewer syllables. Four yeah, syllables. 20, 2024 D&D refresh is a little mouthy. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. A little, little, takes a little time. For sure. Uh, the the playtest packet dropped. It was 77 pages. Uh, <laughs> it was big. Lots of videos, including like a one-hour introduction yep. to yep. it. Uh, uh, there's a link in the show notes. We also have Cobalt Press with two play tests uh, dropping, including an overlap on the Druid. Yeah, yeah, there was two. Yeah. They did they did an open play test for small folk, mm-hmm. and they did including Cobalt. They have Cobalt's and small folk uh, as a separate one. That was pretty short, four pages, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they had a good sized uh, play test that covered a bunch of class stuff, including. And the one thing that caught my eye was like both groups were taking a hard look at druids i was like oh this is interesting like we're seeing both of them in the same week and that nice. was pretty fascinating like how they're handling things like what what uh what wizards calls moon druids and what cobalt press calls uh, shifter druids mm-hmm. uh, which are very similar kind of functions so that was pretty interesting cool uh but what we're not going to do is get into the details of that because it's a lot of content <laughs> it's about 100 and some pages yeah it happened all, all totally. It all happened. It, it all it, came down. It happened, there it is. and it's totally fine if you have opinions and thoughts, and you can share your opinions and thoughts. Maybe at some point we will cover this, but for the most part, my I, my opinion is I can read all of this, and in the end, Wizards is going to publish what Wizards is going to publish, and that's what I'm worried about. Uh, what they actually published that I will have to deal with. I don't so. have to worry about it. They're doing what they're going to do. Exactly. exactly. My, my worry is not going to affect that. Yep. <laughs> not going to affect that outcome. Yep. Uh, I did. I did like that they nerfed Stunning Strike. And if there's anybody out there who's really angry that they nerfed it, I suggest you email Teos. Okay. Teos yep. wants. Teos would definitely like to hear about your uh, issues with Stunning Strike. For sure. You can find Teos on Mastodon at Alpha yep. Stream. You can get. Yeah, on and there if right he now. doesn't respond, send him on multiple platforms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll put his. Uh, we'll, you can text him. You can yep. text him while he's in the Mediterranean. Uh, sure. He said that would be fine. We'll put his right. full uh, phone number his, in his the full, show notes. Phone mail. Phone mail. Phone mail. Phone mail and uh, mailing address. And. If that wasn't enough, the Open RPG Creator License, what you might know as Orc, has dropped. Uh, so I just want to make games. I I don't want to think about legal things. I want to <laughs> have elves and dwarves doing doing th- stuff. So Mike, could you could you tell me what do I need to know as a creator about this Orc license? What it means? What it means in terms of the old gaming license and the the Creative Commons version and and all of that. So I, I mentioned talking to you before that I did a twenty minute segment on my show this week about it and then deleted it from the video because I'm like it's too boring and nobody <laughs> wants to hear this. <laughs> Cut it. So Nothing's I'm gonna try too to boring be as... for us, Mike. <laughs> so I'm gonna try to be really brief. Well, the good thing is I've now done a whole rehearsal. That's good about this. So I'm gonna try to keep it as brief as possible because I've been thinking about it a lot. I've actually been talking to some other publishers about it. Uh, now that it's out, like, what, is it, what does it mean and what are some of the things going on? Uh, my, my opinion is that it is definitely a better OGL, okay. right? That the, the Orc license itself is doing a lot of what the OGL did, 
but it's better in a few ways. Better and it's better in at least two ways, mm -hmm. and maybe better depending on your point of view. In a third, uh, a it is actually an irrevocable perpetual license. It doesn't have any mealy mouth little wormy things like authorized versions, which is what caused the whole GL mm -hmm. fiasco. It does not have that. It is not held by any one company. Definitely Paizo was heavy behind it. Uh, Azora Law was the law firm that actually wrote it and drafted it, but it was drafted in the open. Many variants, many versions were put in the draft. I don't know that it certainly didn't make everybody happy, but you, you know, it was drafted out there in the open for months. Mm -hmm. And Third, it's not, and it, well, so, and as part of that, it is actually going to be held at the Library of Congress. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the the full reference isn't going to be held in online at any one company's URL. It's they're actually submitting it to the Library of Congress so that there is a version out there, and it is just the one license. They say they are never making another one. They're not going to update it. You can't update it. It's just there. Now, the one kind of controversial piece to it is that. Um, it, it specifically says that if you're using the license, you are automatically uh, licensing any of your game mechanics uh, in what you're using. Mm -hmm. So before with OGL, there was sort of this way of saying like, well, here's, what pro here's product identity, which is mm -hmm. stuff that is, I'm keeping for myself that you can't use. And then here's open gaming content, which is stuff you can. And there was no differentiation about whether it was game mechanic stuff or like story focused stuff. This one is specifically saying any game mechanic stuff that you put in there is by default uh, licensable content. Their, their version of, of uh, open gaming content is licensable content. Mm -hmm. And that means like if you write a stat block to a monster and say, I don't want that monster stat block to be usable uh, downstream with Orc, you cannot make that limitation. Like that stat block is available. You can still limit things like trademark names of monsters. So they can't use that particular name with that stat block. But the mechanics of the stat block, the mechanics of your game system, the mechanics of your spells, the mechanics of magic items, anything like that, are automatically in, uh, uh, you know, automatically released. Which again is a benefit for some people because there's good arguments to be made that you can't really copyright game mechanic stuff anyway. There's people that say that's absolutely true. There's people that say it's absolutely not. If you're using this license, you are saying that that is true, at least for this product. You're saying, I'm, I am releasing this and I'm allowing downstream publishers to be able to use that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, it is also a, what they refer to as like a viral license, which means if I, have, if I write a product and I use Orc in mine and you say, I like Mike Shea's thing that he used, I want to use that in mine, you also have to use Orc on your product. And thus you are also releasing all of your game mechanics under the same license and anybody downstream from you that's using your stuff also has to follow it. So it means that once you start using that license, that license, anybody downstream from you has to continue to use that license for everything that's going on forward. Okay. Um, the alternative is like the creative commons attribution license, mm -hmm. which is what uh, wizards of the coast released the, uh, uh, the 5.1 SRD. And at the end of the OGL fiasco was their, their final big, like, oh, we're really sorry. Here it is. Right. And that one is not a viral license that if I, I, I have to follow the limitations of that license by attributing the uh, attributing where I got it, but I can keep all of the rest of my work copywritten. I can actually use other licenses. I can make my own stuff, creative commons, by license so that one is not a viral license you do not you know the cc by share alike license is a viral license mm -hmm. cc by sa it's called that one is also a viral license but the cc by license that wizards use and lots of people are using i'm using it for i have like a lazy gm resource document that i put out under cc by mm -hmm. and that's saying i don't care what you're doing with it downstream 
you can use it however you want. As long as you're referencing my work, as long as you have a little blurb somewhere in your thing that says you use Mike Shea's thing, mm -hmm. you can use whatever you license you want. So I, I tend to prefer that license because I don't want to dictate what people downstream from me have to submit to in order to use my material. I, I like CC BY. You know, when I'm when I want if I'm going to bother to license anything, I'm going to set up a separate document. I'm going to put everything in it that I want people to be able to use, and I put it out CC BY so that they can decide: Do I want to keep everything copywritten and not release anything? Do I want to use CC BY? You can even have ORC happen downstream. They mm. could decide to use ORC, and that's okay because ORC is compatible with CC BY, but not the other way. Mm. And that's one of the things that's interesting. So, as a creator, you have to decide how important it is to you that people downstream from you have to release all of their game mechanics. Mm -hmm. If that is important to you and you want that to happen and you want to make sure that they're using the same license that you use, then Orc seems like a good license for it. If, however, you want downstream publishers to have the freedom to be able to use that material however they want, I think a CC BY license is a better way to go. And that's the one that I recommend. Okay. So what SRD is associated with Orc? There, uh, so the, there is no single SRD associated with Orc. Okay. Orc can be used on any SRD. And again, gotcha. an example is Level Up Advanced 5e. Morris over at N-World Publishing, who yep. runs Level Up Advanced 5e, immediately released all of A5e under Orc. Okay. All he said was, everything in A5e is also available under Orc. And, and he didn't like, you know, put it up on a web page and it was done. Okay. Now, that same SRD is also available under Creative Commons BY. You know, it's also under CC BY, which means there's another license that he already has been using for it that is less restrictive. So I don't know why I would bother to use the Orc license for that. Right. But he, his, his answer to that was, well, now you have a choice. If you want to use ORC, you can use ORC. If you want OGL, because a lot of people are still using OGL. It's not broken. It was right. never deauthorized. Right. I seriously doubt Wizards is going to try to deauthorize it again. That didn't, didn't seem to go so well didn't, the first yeah, time. Yeah. So, but, you know, and, and so he said it's released under all three licenses. You pick whatever license you want. So if for some reason somebody is loyal to ORC and wants to use ORC, they can. But I could still use ORC and still use his Creative Commons version. So it was an interesting thing. But yeah, the answer is any SRD can use it. Any, mm, any okay. product can use it. It doesn't even have to be an SRD. You can gotcha. like, that's actually one advantage of ORC is like the OGL, I can publish an entire book. And then in the front of that book, I can say, I am licensing material on the, uh, in this book under ORC. This is my product identity that you cannot use. And this is the stuff that is specifically saying you can use as licensed content, and it automatically includes any mechanics I put in that book. Mm -hmm. And that way you don't have to have an SRD, because most of them don't. Like most uses of the OGL don't have an SRD. Right. Okay. Awesome. I still don't know anything, but I appreciate... <laughs> I, I tried. I tried, man. No, no, you, 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 did, you, you did your best. You did your best. Uh, it's going to be hard to penetrate this thick skull. If you want to give something, I'll give, I'll give you a short answer. If you, Mike Shea's opinion, right? Okay. People argue. The short answer is if you want people to be able to use your work in other commercial works, consider using the CC BY, the Creative Commons Attribution License. It's a really good license. It's been around for 20 years. Bill, literally billions of products use it. Cool. There you go. You heard it here first from Mike Shea or second or third, depending on where else you've heard. Uh, Mike, yeah. you can decide if you want to cut this part from the show like I do. Uh, <laughs> definitely. Do. I don't have the technology to do that. <laughs> like I can't be bothered. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we got news that Beetle and Grimm is going big by going smaller. What you might ask? Well, they are including now in their latest product less than they normally do. So this is a an enigmatic in-world golden vault assignment folder for keys from the golden vault. 
it is only $95. What doesn't it include? Well, it doesn't include the adventure that it's for, as it has in the past. So we've seen some of their big boxes, some of their platinum editions, $300, $400, $500, containing the adventure and all the props and maps and stuff. So what they're doing here is for $95, you get this assignment folder with 13 player maps, 13 DM maps, six battle maps, scaled uh, to, you know, for grid play, 13 in-world call-to-action letters, and nine additional in-world handouts. And I thought, yeah, this is interesting. It's interesting that they're taking this tact. This is probably the one of the smallest things that Beetle and Grimm has done uh, to support one of these big Watsi products. And I'm wondering if it's just profit profit margins are getting slimmer and slimmer. So they're, they're trying this. Um, any, any thoughts? Did you have yeah. you ever bought any Beetle I, Grimm I, stuff? Yes, I bought one and one I was, I was given as a, for, for, uh, they, they gave me one to biz back when justice Armand was working for uh, Beetle and Grimm and, and, and justice is very kind and sent me, uh, I think, uh, managed to get the powers that be to send me their platinum edition of, uh, Curse of Strahd, which uh. as I mentioned before, is my favorite adventure of all time. So it was really cool to have that, that box set. Um, what's interesting about this one is half the price of their cheapest set. Mm-hmm. So they often do these silver editions, which are pretty, I mean, depending on affordable, I would argue if you're going to run, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours of a campaign, $200 isn't totally out of hand, right? right. Dollar per hour is pretty good. And um, uh, so they, they had these $200 sets. They have them for like Spelljammer. They have them for Dragon Heist. Uh, I had the uh, silver edition of, um, uh, what's it? The Seafaring one. Uh, Ghost of Saltmarsh. Ghost of Saltmarsh. And yeah, and and it's really really quality stuff. Uh, so and it's yeah. So I think I think doing a lower price one makes sense. Like why not test? You know, they've they've certainly tested the high end with five hundred dollar box mm-hmm. sets. They're probably not going to go much higher than that. Maybe they could. Here's a thousand dollar really good set. I don't know yeah. what it comes with. Um, it comes with the designer. It comes in a box. Um, and so the idea of like, well, let's try one where we, we strip it down even, even thinner, uh, could be good. A lot of the material is fantastic. Like I really, really like it. My only, my only trick in using these is my adventures tend to go off the rails pretty quickly. And a lot of the material that comes in the boxes are expecting you to be running the adventure as is, Mm -hmm. which I don't really do. Some of it is still useful, but I remember in the ghost of salt marsh, I had a letter that uh, was like the deed to the mansion and written on the bottom of the letter was one of the main bad guys that the characters already knew was a bad guy. And I'm like, I don't think that he's going to be signing the lease to your establishment yeah. after you've already like been trying to hunt him down in the far corners of the earth. So there were little like weird bits where like, I can't really use, you know, I can't really use every piece. And there are good, you know, good chunks of it where it's like, because of the way the adventure went, I, I ended up not using the material that they had. So that, that felt like I'd left money on the table. Yeah. But it's the quality is fantastic. And it's like, it's either this or you got to print all this stuff out yourself or right so yeah it's neat 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 stuff so i'm i'm yeah i'm excited and in this case it looks like it lines up with sort of the smaller adventures so it's not necessarily one ongoing campaign i haven't read keys from the golden vault yet so uh i assume that that's sort of the oh here's the here's the letter calling you to action here's your map here's my map and we just go through these 13 different uh mini adventures if you will so it'll, it'll be interesting. If anybody out there has purchased it or knows any more about it, let us know what you think of it, especially in comparison to some of the other stuff that they've done. 
Yeah, and they're clearly not shying away from the great big sets either. They have the legendary mm -hmm. edition of the Fandelver and Below adventure mm -hmm. that's coming out. True. And that's a three, big $350 yeah. you know, plat, you know, premium box set. So, yeah. that, that's one. That's the one adventure I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, but that's just me. I love, I love going back to the same place over and over and over again. Can I, can I just complain? Like, I yeah. wanted this adventure 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. Like, do you know how many times I've had people say like, hey, what am I supposed to play after Lost Mine of Found Delver? And I'm like, I don't know. Like nothing really fits very well. And now 10 years later, two starter sets later, like, oh, we're going back to Van Delver. Like, Why? Hey, what I've been I've been back to Van Delver for an Adventures League adventure and Acquisitions Incorporated. We went back Excellent. there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, th there's the answer now, Mike. There's, there's the, answer the answer to your question. Perfect. What do you do? I should have been given that all along. Speaking of going back to a place over and over and over again, Baldur's <laughs> Gate 3 uh, is now updated for a release on August 3rd on PC and September 6th on PlayStation. I have not checked it out yet, although people in my home group have been playing and really, really loving it. Um, Larian Studios... Uh, yeah, has made fantastic. some has made some yeah. great games, and yeah. you know, having played Destiny, uh, I I want to see uh, what the, what they're doing here. Destiny or Divinity? Divinity, Divinity original sorry. sin. Yeah, yeah. D Divinity. Sorry. Yeah, Divinity. Yeah. So, uh, have you yeah. have you had a chance to look at the game? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm a big fan. I played Divinity Original Sin two all the way through. I pre-ordered. I was on the alpha, or whatever they call it. The what do they what do they call it when you give them money early by the thing? Sucker. And, yeah, sucker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I bought it when I had a PC, and now I don't even have a PC to play it on anymore. Oh, it's been so long. Like, it feels like it's been four years. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right? It came out around the same time Descent into Avernus came out. So yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time. And now I hear it's going to be on PlayStation 5, and I'm like, I totally want to play it on that. But I already paid all this money back then to get the PC version. I'll probably just buy it again. I think yeah. I just, like you said, sucker. Yeah. So, um, but it, yeah, it looks it looks really good, and and I hope to be you know bored of Diablo four enough to uh, mm -hmm. to play this when it comes out in September. Cool. So keep that uh, keep that in mind going forward. Last but not least in our news, let's talk about a couple of crowdfunding things. First of all, if you're a Savage Worlds fan, there will be a Kickstarter soon for its twentieth uh, anniversary with its fifth printing, bundles, and more. New player guides with various covers, accessories, including edge cards and tokens. Uh, it's It was over about a, about $100,000 after its first week, and this ends July 27th. There is a link in the show notes. you play Savage Worlds at all? No, I've I bought a lot of Savage Worlds stuff and have looked into it. I think mm -hmm. I might have played once in a one-shot, but it's mm -hmm. definitely one of the lists of, of games I'd love, to, I'd love to try out. Yeah, I hear a, lots of great things about yeah, it. Yeah, same here. There's a big community near here that plays all the different flavors of it, and, and uh, I've played it a few times. It's a good game, good solid game. So if yeah. you are a fan, you can check out the Kickstarter until it ends on July 27th. Uh, if you are a Ghostfire gaming fan, the Ethereal Expanse setting Who isn't? Guide. Who's exactly. not a Ghostfire gaming fan? Get out of here if you're not. Fan. Uh, so in case you've missed the, the whole story behind it, when we were doing Fables at Ghostfire, we had uh, the second and the third season of Fables were Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse and Agents of the Empire, both set in this uh, setting. So now we are putting out the full setting guide to support those two adventures plus whatever other uh, content you want to create in, in that. There's about a week left as of when this show airs and we're creeping up on $200,000. So we appreciate all the support so far and 
you can go check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Yep, I backed it. I can't wait. I'm really excited for it. Cool, cool. But I want to hear more about Forge of Foes. I heard it was released, and I downloaded PDFs this morning. Nice. I want to know why this is the last thing, like why we're talking about it now. It's the last thing in news. Like this, you know, headliner. This is the headliner. This is the headliner. All right. But I guess I'll, I'll take what I can. I'm saving the best for last, Mike. Taking the best for last. Yes, Forge of Foes was released. Teos and Scott and I have been working our asses off on this thing. And, uh, yeah, it, and the, the PDF was released to our 7,100 backers. And um, the feedback has been fantastic. Like this has been very, very exciting. We're still, you know, in that in the early stages of getting it ready to go to print, uh, but we're super excited that people have it in hands. People are, you know, building monsters with it. People are reading it and really enjoying it. So we couldn't be happier. It really, it really is great. I'm very happy with it. Well, congratulations to you three you. on on that. And I can't wait to open my PDF. I had to record some stinking podcast oh. first, but oh. I'll get to it right after. <laughs> You'll enjoy it. And now let's get to our main topic today. We are going to talk about home games versus organized play games here on Mastering Dungeons. Uh, I, for years and years and years, never played organized play because it wasn't around. And then I just couldn't get into it. I took my break, came back for third edition, and that's all I did was organized play because that was the way I was finding games. And so that led to my career here in role-playing games. And now for the last couple of years, I've been out of it again because I've been <laughs> focusing all my time with Ghostfire Gaming and getting getting content created there. So it's been an interesting path for me. What's your experience with organized play and, and home games? Sure. So I, I did just a little touch of it in the third edition days. Um, you know, going to like a local convention and, and sitting down and playing some games and wondering why everyone's yelling that why I don't have an RPGA card mm -hmm. and, you know, handing me income tax forms that I needed to fill out in order to, 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 to be able to run a game. And then fourth edition, I got much more involved in, in organized play programs. I ran games at my, my local game shops here. I wrote some organized play uh, programs for uh, Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one called Kill the Wizard. Do you remember they were doing the, the encounter program? Oh, that yeah, was an yeah. encounter. Larisalt. Lair Remember Lair Assault? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I got to write, I think I wrote two Lair Assaults for Wizards of the Coast, including nice. one that was called Kill the Wizard, yeah. And, and you know, so, um, and, and of course ran them and, and played them pretty heavily in the fourth edition days. Uh, then in fifth edition, I started doing organized play stuff in the beginning. Uh, I was one of those, you know, kind of not, not great or local organized play people who was using my organized play game to find good players to bring to my home game. Sure. Um, and then ended up liking everybody that I played with so much. They became my home game at the store and we stopped doing, you know, after I think like a couple of seasons, uh, stopped doing the organized part and just said, we're just going to, you know, it was the same people every week. Right. Why don't we just play a campaign, right? We can still play the published campaign, yeah. but they weren't dancing from table to table. They were only playing there. The characters were only there. And we were like, well, we'll just stick to that. And I did a little bit of organized play early on in fifth with other groups as well. And I have played in organized play program, in organized play games uh, at conventions and things like that. And also a little bit online uh, ever since and, and still have done a little bit from here and there. Mm -hmm. But definitely most of my experience in the past 10 years has been doing home games. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what it means to run a home game, especially in Dungeons and Dragons versus what it means to play organized play. So most home game DMs either create their own adventures and maybe their own house rules, their own way to advance characters. Uh, 
they may create their own adventures, they may use published adventures, but it's it's their own discrete little section of their own universe that they play in, and nobody crosses that line. Organized play generally uh, uses published adventures, and the walls of the campaign are porous. So you can move from your you run or play an organized play campaign at a store. That character, if it follows the rules of this campaign, can then go to a convention and play as long as it's playing in this organized play setting. Then you can go to a, a friend's house and play. You could have many different adventuring party compatriots over the years as you move from table to table and have 20 different DMs as you play 20 different adventures. The organizing principle, though, is there is a set of rules on top of the normal game rules that your character and the players and the game masters must abide by in order to make it fair and trackable as you play and then move from place to place. There are some instances in organized play where you can create your own adventure content. There is a program called Dungeon Craft that lets you, for the Adventures League, create your own campaign. Uh, for Oracle of War, we had a way for you to create your own adventures and intersperse them with the published adventures to create a home game feel while still uh, being within the umbrella of organized play. There are many different kinds of organized play programs. Uh, some people play one and they think, oh, all organized play is like Adventurers League. And it's not. Um, you can have different types of campaigns, different ways of tracking things, different ways of adventures being put out. Uh, sometimes it would be a, just a huge mass of adventure and you can go in any direction. Sometimes it's a more linear path, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's that extra set of rules on top that generally differentiates an organized play program from a home game. Whew. <laughs> good, good description. Yeah. And anything to add to that? No, only that my own experience is mostly with Adventures League, right? Mm -hmm. I, all my my experiences with the organized play programs at Wizards of the Coast and their affiliates have been yeah. have been running over the years. I only say that because I started working in uh, organized play in two thousand and one with Living Greyhawk, the third edition sort of main tentpole uh, organized play campaign for for Wizards. And I would, so I would go to a convention and someone would walk by and say, what are you doing? And, oh, I'm running Living Greyhawk. It's an RPGA living campaign. And they'd be like, oh, RPGA living, that, those are stupid. And I'd be like, right. why? Well, back in 1982, <laughs> I'm like, dude, it's 2006. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm still mad. Right. It's been 1982 and I'm still mad. Right. And so, okay, well, what what was bad about it then? And, and they would list off five things that are no longer <laughs> even have anything to do with organized play. So it it changes from time to time uh, or from campaign to campaign or from week to week for better or for worse. But having created in both home game uh, environments and organized play environments and DM'd in those environments... Uh, 
what do you think, Mike, uh, is the difference for DMs between those two types of play? Yeah, so I've I've done both. And obviously most of what I think is interesting about our conversation here is, is you have done an extensive amount of running games uh, in organized play programs. And I have only done a little bit, mm-hmm. right? I've done it here and there. And um, and have done done less because of some of the things that I saw when I was running organized play games, which mm-hmm. which kind of jaded me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the the expectations of the players that are coming to an organized play game are different from what players are expecting when they go to a home game. It's easy to say like, well, they're expecting a good time, a fun story. They want to see their characters do cool stuff. There are lots of similarities. But I think there's also an expectation about like how close you're going to stay to the material that's in the adventure. There's there's also I think more of a character focus that players have because and more of a more of a mechanical focus of their characters mm-hmm. because they know that they're going to be going from different group to different group. Uh and they and different DM to different DM. So a lot of what happens in the story either is part of the story that they've all experienced because they've all gone through that part of the story. Or they're seeing the interesting mechanical things that their character has done because their character has been growing from one adventure to the other, either getting new magic items or leveling up and things like that. So it's different than like watching a character's story change, an individual character's story change from adventure to adventure. Because the only person that would know anything about that story is you, because mm-hmm. you're the only one that's been taking it from one DM to one group to one game. On the assumption that you're not playing with like a group of players and that group is moving along through an organized play path, which... I think can happen, but then that's a lot more like a like a home campaign. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's like everything else where you can look at tendencies and say yes, that's a tendency, but doesn't always fit that rule. Uh, one of the things I love about organized play, as opposed to a home game, is I can run an adventure five times at, at, at a convention or a game day or something over a weekend and the players love to hear each other's stories. It's not always the case, but it's like, Oh, did you play the adventure before this? Oh yeah. What did you do? And it, it brings that community. Whereas right. if, if, if right. you're at a home game, you know, the story, I think you know what you we did. We all last experienced week. it. Yeah. Last yeah. week we did this. Whereas this, right. it's like, Oh, well we took this other route and right. this is what happened. Well, yeah. Did you have to the same fight we did then? No, our fight was different because we went this right. route. So the bad guy didn't have the accomplices, but the bad guy had a dragon instead. Right. And right. so, oh, yeah. It, and so that sort of community is something that you would see back in AD&D days before the Internet where people got together. Oh, you played D&D? Did you play Tomb, uh, Tomb of Annihilation, that's a little more recent. Uh, to, Tomb of Horrors. Oh yeah, right. what did did you stick your head in the thing? Yeah, oh, you put yeah, your, put your, yeah, yeah, we didn't stuck work it. Out. Yeah, Bob stuck his head in the thing, and oh, it was, oh he yeah. doesn't play D anD D anymore. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> he quit. Uh, so, so that you know that sort of thing, that community that it builds, is one of the one of the best parts, I think, of organized play. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there are some drawbacks, obviously. Uh, like you said, you know, you go, you found the players you loved in organized play, and then right. you brought Just them. Kept them, kept them in a home kept, group. Right. Kept them. Uh, right. You hugged them close to you. And, right. We all and, decided we didn't want to fill out the 1099, the 1099 yeah. forms for right. experience and loot. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And so that, that's the whole thing. Uh, so d- in terms of DMing skills, uh, 
any anything that you as a organized play dm that you learned that you got better at because you were dming in this uh, arena rather than for a home game um things that i learned yeah so there's a there are a couple things that both seeing people running organized play games and running them myself that i brought over that i think works is one is about pacing like i mm -hmm. think now some of this could be because most of the organized play games i played are at conventions and conventions have very strict schedules and like you better you know you better hammer out your adventure in in the four hour time block that you've got because mm -hmm. other group is going to be sitting at your table right there right. <laughs> um that having that you know it's like it's sort of like working as a reporter in a newspaper you don't have time to worry about whether you can write or not like you're writing like you better get those words out because the paper's going out mm -hmm. and that same kind of idea of like if you're a dm that i think and you know i've seen plenty of people who weren't particularly good at it that if you're a dm who regularly plays in those timed events you better get good about timing and pacing and moving things forward and keeping track of time and and in my opinion the best ones know how to make an adventure fit the time that you've got even as it's taking weird paths and still have a good satisfying conclusion yeah. and that's one that i've seen lots of dms who aren't particularly good at it where they run what they run what i refer to as the boring middle and then cut the end short yeah. right and you're like there was a there was a good arc in there and instead we spent a time doing skill challenges across the swamp right mm -hmm. and rolling checks to see whether we were losing our boots in the mud and then yeah. then we were going to fight a dragon at the end and like well we're going to call it right here we'll just yeah. say you guys beat the dragon and you're like yeah. <laughs> you know why'd you keep the mud boot part yeah. And cut the dragon part. So that this, I think that's this game probably, is Dungeons and Dragons, not Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons and losing boot, boot sucking. Swap. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so I, I think that that's something that that organized play DMs can pick up. Obviously, something another big one is just learning all of the different ways to engage with so many different kinds of players. That's uh, you know that 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 players uh, many and you know I think you and I have had Twitter arguments about this long ago about the the player archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. And, and there are so many variants of those archetypes that actually seeing them play at the table and knowing what kind of different players uh, bring and then figuring out how to engage with them, well, then you can bring those same kind of th tricks that worked well to engage different players who are one of different things to your home group mm -hmm. uh, if they fit that model too, right? Yeah. Now, the opposite is also true, though, where like, and I was talking to David Christ about this, who runs Baldwin Games. You and I both know David. Mm -hmm. And... You know, he, he brought up a good point. He's like, there are some DMs who are fantastic at home games and terrible at organized play games, right? That the skill set is different enough that he, you know, <laughs> that they can be kicked out of the program. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, it's like I played in their home games. They're freaking awesome, but we're not letting, we're not letting them run games for, 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 for folks at a convention. Yeah. And, you know, because the skill set can be so different and knowing your players and your players knowing you. And, and that, that sort of synergy that you have with this one like tight, cohesive little group is very different when you have different people coming to the table. Mm -hmm. And that's something where like, I've had personal experience that drew me away from DMing, where like I ran organized play games. I had two instances where I <laughs> ran organized play programs. One was running Wasp Mine of Delver, the starter set adventure to, 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 uh, to fifth edition. And I changed out the spells that one of the NPCs had, you know, and I, I like had the spellcaster throw a web out instead of whole person or whatever, because I'm like, right. whole person sucks and web is good, so I can use web. And one of the players is like, you're not playing the mod, 
right? Like that's not that's not what the mod says. The mod says that he's got whole person and you're just arbitrarily changing spells. And I'm like, no, I'm role playing the NPC who knows why Web is better than whole person, right? <laughs> right. And I was like, you know, hey, like if you want to play the mod, you can get an Excel spreadsheet, right? Like yeah. you don't need me, right? And and so it kind of turned me off, right? The idea that like you know, if you were very, it also turned me off that the dude knew what spell lineup the NPC had, right? Yeah. It was like you've been through this before so much, so that yeah. you know, so so that you know, and that's where I feel like, and I'm 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 picking one player and using that as a model for all organized play players, you yeah. know, hundred thousand organized play players. But I, I do think that there there definitely is a sense I've seen this also on the other side of playing it that there are players who are like they expect that when they've had the experience of going through that module, that they've had that experience mm -hmm. and they don't want it to vary too much right. that they can't have that conversation with someone else. And they say, well, we went on this whole different thing because the DM just took it off in this whole other path. And we never even saw that stuff that you talked about, right? Like they generally want it to be following. And I think that like the, the organized play, you know, the groups that are running it are hoping that everybody is having a shared experience mm -hmm. and you can only have that shared experience if at least the big parts of it, Right. are following along the lines right and yeah so so yeah those are those are those are a couple a couple of thoughts on it Th this is probably more terrifying a, a comparison than it should be but sometimes being an organized play dm in terms of going out and dming for strangers is like being a substitute teacher at a high school mm -hmm. where you don't know what you're getting into you don't right. you don't have, know the kids they don't, don't know you know, they don't know you. you don't have that rapport right. yet you're walking yeah. in, but there's you need to finish. You need to do a thing. <laughs> you have you, it right. You have right. a thing. Right? The, the the teacher has left lesson plans, and you need to get through them. And at the end of class, you have to have taught this thing. Have the students have done this thing, so you need to walk into this lion's den, yeah. and come out the other side. Now, the generally the students are more cooperative in an organized play, right? They're they're generally better behaved. Generally, yeah, they all, they all, generally they want to sit there and have a good time. Better behaved, right? Yeah, they're, they're not trapped there. They they chose to be here. Right. Um, Many cases paid money to be there. Exactly. Yeah. So in that case, since it's different, but a lot of the tools, uh, I always go back to teaching, in terms of being a good DM, because a good DM has to do a lot of things that a teacher has to do, uh, in terms of looking at all the people in, in the room, right? Going from person to person, making sure you're talking to everyone, not favoring one person over another, recognizing the needs of certain people uh, over as, as opposed to needs of others. Using those people and using those traits to be able to help everyone. So talk about pacing, right? If you have somebody who loves to role play and may drone on a bit and slow the game down versus the person who is get it done person, right? You can use this person to add flavor to the game. But then when it's time to get something done, you focus your attention over here and that person moves the game along and generally people will then follow. So it's those sorts of skills that you learn when you play with a bunch of different people in a bunch of different settings, maybe even with a bunch of different game rules. Um, I was running, not organized play, but a convention of uh, Star Trek Adventures last week at Origins. Completely different rule set, but a lot of the same tools uh, that you use for game mastering one transfer to game mastering the other. So that's important. Uh, we've been talking about different skills, uh, and we've been getting into the topic of where do the 
skills match up for DMs of home play versus organized play. Uh, anything you want to mention on that? No, I, I, I think I've I think I've hit it. Yeah, uh, you have a note here about being a fan of the players. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. yeah. So there are definitely areas where where you know I think a, the, where the skills definitely overlap between the two, and I think that's a big one. And I again, this is one where I've seen I've seen DMs who are definitely more of a, com, a competitive DM running mm-hmm. organized play. I've also seen competitive DMs that are running home you know, home groups uh, yeah. versus the ones that are definitely like there to help your character look awesome, right? Mm-hmm. That th- those that are really like recognize the fact that the main the main characters of the story are are the, the player characters. Yeah. And focusing on that, and I think that that's something both groups can definitely pick up. Even if you're, even if you're staying true to an organized play adventure and trying to make sure that you're sticking to the main experience that's in that adventure, still putting the characters in positions where they can, where they can, you know, navigate it in a cool way, is better than letting them get stuck in, you know, mud that requires four squares of movement per square in order to move out of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know gotchas a big one is like gotchas right like dms who are super excited when you trigger their trap and die versus those that are like giving you information your character would know to avoid or you know to at least recognize what the challenge is if the character would know it right this is a big one that i talk about which is like half the time players aren't hearing what a dm is talking about right like half the time players aren't understanding what you're saying right and so if the character would know it don't hide it like if the character would see it if the character's right the character's life is actually at risk and they're actually professionals and you're not you're just some dude sitting there with your phone in your hand so you know tell them the things that are important um i think those are good you know those are good traits that i think both organized play dms and um home dms can 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 definitely pick up and Mm -hmm. you know reinforce whether you're one or the other yeah so what can organized play games learn from home games then uh, you know, I, I think the best organized play campaigns do what they can to feel like home games while still maintaining the structure that's necessary to hold up the campaign. And sometimes the campaign grows too large and you lose that home game feel as you were talking about Mike filling out a tax form at the end of each, (laughs) each game to not only see how much gold and experience and magic and favors and boons and time units and whatever the the campaign has, not just that, but also putting your RPGA number and being trackable and putting, you know, having the, having your card and doing all of those things. And it's, I think that's gotten a lot better too, right? Like now, now we're down to like a ten ninety nine easy, yeah, right? Where yeah, you well, just well, pretty you know, much. It's, it's much simpler than it used to be. And that comes from years of lessons. That comes from years of failing to understand that standard, and failing to understand that there are people who gravitate toward that, and so they don't complain because they love the paperwork. <laughs> uh, and and there's not if you do that's fine, but you j- always have to recognize that there are people there that want to play, and and maybe jot down oh I gained a level and that's as much as they want to track right anything they write on their character sheet is is all they want to do they don't want forms they don't want all of that and 
there's there's probably room for both kinds of of campaigns, but then you're splitting a campaign, right? There's room for this ultra uh, ultra accounting heavy tracking, and then the, oh, you gain a level and you gain two hundred gold pieces, and if you want this magic item, you've got it. Boom, right. we're done. Um, right. But there does need to be some support to help people understand the campaign itself that they're in, even the story facets of it, um, to remember they may have played one adventure and three months later they play the next adventure in, in our series. They may need to be reminded of what they did last time. So mm-hmm. having something in place that allows that can be, can be handy too. It, it is that is something that home games can learn. I've definitely had some home games where, like, you gain twenty eight hundred gold as a party. They're like, "Hey, does anybody remember how much gold you have?" Like, "Oh no, I thought you were keeping track." I don't yeah. know how much gold we have. You're like, we're level eight. Like, you've been getting gold for a long time, and I'm not going to tell you how much gold you have. I have no idea either. Like, you know, nobody kept track of our gold. We know we have some, yeah. but we don't know where it is. And, yeah. and and that's that's one thing that maybe they need a 1099. Yeah, well, it's not even a 1099, right? It maybe it's half a sheet of paper at the yeah, end of right. each adventure that shows what you did and what you got. Yeah. And I think Baldman Games was doing that with their uh Moonshay Isles adventures for a while. Was here's here's half a quarter or a half sheet of paper. This is what yeah. you did, this is what you earned. Yeah, that's nice. If you want to throw it out, fine, but right. you know, if but, you just put it with your you, character you did sheet. receive it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh yeah, we we've We've sort of learned, we being the uh, organized play community, we've learned what works, what doesn't, what might be too much, what not, what might be not enough, uh, and those sorts of things. Yeah. Have you ever taken a one of those outside rules, one of those paperwork things from organized play and used it in your home game or thought about using it in your home game? No, I mean, I, I now have a player who's keeping a Google Sheets to track treasure and, and gold after they realize they probably lost tens of thousands of gold because <laughs> nobody bothered to keep track. Um, I, for a little while, I was handling, I think this is kind of more in the other direction where like when, when organized play was handling experience points as the default and we generally figured out, well, yeah, but you know, certain, you know, like there's an expectation of how fast people are leveling anyway. So we'll just take whatever those experience points are, divide them by the number of sessions, and that's how many you get. And I'm not going to bother to figure out, like, per monster, mm-hmm. you know, how much experience they had. Um, I, don't, I don't know that there's any other... Yeah, like the, the writing down of magic items, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Organized Play and, and, and Adventures League, I, I, I presume they still have them, right? Like the, the cards that have, like, fancy magic item descriptions on them. Remember those things? The people certs. have binders full of the cards. Like, yeah, the certs. The certs yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have one that's unique. I have one that Ooh. there's only one of in the world, and I've got it. Nice. I think you gave it to me I, I, or somebody. It's, yeah. it's quite possible. Quite yeah. Possible. Was it the Sararak killing folk? I think, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, and I, you, uh, you announced it from the balcony at Origins. Yeah, yeah. I was the first character killed by a Sararak. That's true. And there was one card. Yeah. Avail. I still have it. There's one card for the first person to get killed by get killed and have their soul stolen by a Sarak, and that was me. That's you. Um, so those incredible. cards matter, and like that idea of putting magic items on cards and describing what they have, and then at the table being able to hand somebody a card that says, "Here's this plus two sword," mm-hmm. um, is a is a really good. Uh, you know, that's a yeah. that's a it's a fun way to make something feel real. It's a it's it's worth the energy to to, to write it out and, and give it to somebody. Yeah, in the uh, in the box sets that they put out now, wizards, right? They they have the yeah, cards right. with, with the magic yep. items yep. on them. So yeah, it is yeah. it is nice to to hold that something yeah. in your hand. 
as a creator, I don't, this isn't even on our sheet, but as a creator, you've written for organized play, you've written mm -hmm. for everyone else, you've written for home groups. Mm -hmm. Any, any thoughts on that process? Any thoughts on, <laughs> do you, do I'm you much have happier writing for home groups. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm much happier writing my own, my own things. Um, I'd so I, I have two, like it, for organized play, uh, adventures for fifth edition, I have two adventures. Uh, that are up on the DMs Guild, uh, uh, Drowned Tower and The Innocent, I think are the two for, for I think, season three, two? I don't even remember. Season two and season four or something like that. And um, the tricky bit with those, uh, A, I was younger and, and uh, uh, less experienced in writing kind of adventures like this. But there was also sort of like the framework that you had to write the adventure in, that you knew that you were one component of this. I think we had this conversation about how writing for, I think, season four, which was the Curse of Strahd season mm -hmm. uh, for Adventures League, that there was like, you know, their, their plan was to have like a whole campaign. And I think that has now changed to sort of like, tr you know, like a trio, right? Like three yeah. adventures that kind of fill it out because they figured out that trying to, you know, players couldn't go through the whole campaign and figure it out. And remember, they had these like weird hooks that would lead into the adventure and weird hooks that would lead out of the adventure and then some theme. And then you had to write and make it all make sense. Mm -hmm. And that was really, it was really hard to do, right? It was really hard to, and then like you look at the criticism and the criticism all, is all about the stuff that you were given. <laughs> you know, like, right. I don't know why, you know, I saw somebody like, I don't know why you want to have anything to do with freaking Ravenloft. <laughs> and you're like, well, because they told me you want to had to be in it, right? Like, yeah. They're like, you can write anything you want, but it better have you want to. So, um, yeah, so there were definitely like, you know, you sort of had a bunch of different masters when you're, when you're writing, a, when you're writing a, an organized play adventure. And it's different, you know, now, you know, a difference is like I, I'm comparing that to self-publishing adventures where I have only one boss and it's just me. And I can just write it and it could suck and I could put it out there and it sucks, right? But at least I only have one, you know, there's only one person's directions other than maybe I have, you know, ideally 10,000 bosses of all the people that are going to buy this adventure and then run mm -hmm. it. But at least I can focus it and I don't have to worry about, you know, sort of other aspects. I can, if the loot makes sense for the adventure, I can put the loot in there. I don't have to worry if there's some, you know, sort of framework for loot for the rest of the campaign that it has to right. fit into. Um, I don't know that there's any other, I mean, writing some organized play adventures taught me a lot. One, one that taught me a ton was Vault of the Dracolich, which I wrote with my, my partners, Teo Sabadia and Scott Fitzgerald Gray, right? We were, we were all introduced to each other in our, in our uh, uh, semi-professional capacity, professional for them, semi-professional semi -professional for me, uh, about writing that adventure. And that was right between fourth and fifth edition. And I remember like designing the map for that and it was very linear. It was like a spider web with like a hub and like a bunch of paths that would go in because it was a multi-group adventure. And I remember Greg Bilsland, who was the, the Wizards of the Coast producers, like, yeah, that doesn't work anymore. You can't, you can't do it like that. It's, you know? And I'm like, what? And, you know, how's, how, how are they supposed to play this thing if it's not like five scenes? Right? Like, they can go anywhere? What do you mean they can go anywhere? And so that taught me a lot about like, what, what now we kind of refer to as uh, Jay Quazing the dungeon, the idea of like multiple paths and multiple layers and elevation changes and loopbacks and secret passages and all sorts of other things that make a nonlinear layout. Uh, was something that I learned there, and and you know Scott and Teos were were instrumental in helping break my brain about you know how to think about adventures like that. Mostly because fourth edition was so regimented in how that style of play worked. Like right. you you knew you're only getting like three scenes, maybe three battles, you know two to three battles in a adventure. Right. 
So, you know, and fifth isn't like that, you know, so it was, it was great. Getting that change took, took, took me some effort. Yeah. Um, and, and had to do with like writing an organized play adventure like yeah. that for, for, for you know, one of the first ones. Yeah. I remember working on Halls of Undermountain and that was at the end of fourth edition where they were trying yeah. to get people ready for a new way of playing. And they're like, okay, we want you to make this fourth edition, uh, Undermountain adventure, but don't do it like we've been doing it. Do it like an old school D and D dungeon. And I'm like, but the encounters and the rests and the daily powers. Yeah, and, exactly. Like and it's, it's going like, to change everything. Okay, yeah. here we go. Let's see what we can come up with. <laughs> right, so, right. And I never, was... I never had any experience because my my only writing for for role playing games started with fourth edition. I didn't write anything for third. So, and I certainly didn't write other than my own homebrew adventures. Anything you know previous to that. And looking at how fifth feels like second edition. Mm-hmm. A lot of times. Right. Well, I didn't have any experience with that. And I'd been learning that now for the past, you know, 10 years while this system has been out. And I love it. Like, I, you know, I'm happier writing adventures now than I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, you know, it took me time to, to, to figure that out and to break, break past the mold of that fourth edition that kind of wired into, into my brain. Yeah. Awesome. Any other thoughts on this before we wrap up our show today? Uh, I had like my little quippy statement of like, if you're running games for your friends at home, and they're all loving it and you're all loving it. Doesn't matter like how you would do in an organized play in an organized play setting. Yeah. Uh, and and I brought up David Chris's anecdote about the you yeah. know a, a guy a guy who was yeah, and there might be another story here that I don't know, but somebody who was removed from playing in organized play games who apparently was awesome playing for, for, for home games. Yeah, I mean and, yeah, if you're good, if you're having fun with your friends and they're telling you you're a great DM, guess what? You're right. a great DM. You are, yeah, right. Like no one else gets to decide that for anybody. Right. This is this is always my favorite. Like whenever the back back when like you know there was social media, um, that that there was always like the world's best DMs are here. You know, there was a time at Wizards of the Coast where their community matters like all the best DMs are here. And I'm like, that seems statistically unlikely because I'm pretty sure there's somewhere where there's a best DM that's in a basement with four other people. We have no idea who it is. Mm -hmm. They're not streaming their game. They're not posting pictures on Twitter. They're just enjoying their game. And their players are happier than everyone else in the world of RPGs. Exactly. Exactly. And what makes a great DM? It changes from table to table. For some people, the great DM is the person who has the terrain all set up and all the player handouts and all the props for some people it's the person who can make the best jokes while in character and improv the whole thing with a single three by five card exactly and and everything in between so if you're a dm and your players are having fun rock on you keep doing what you're doing if you want to learn different skills if you want to see see different see different player types see how how the other half for different players yeah yeah. yeah, go to a game store during free RPG month, which or free RPG weekend, which just happened, or go run an organized player. Sit down with a group of strangers and play. See what the other DMs are like. That's that's one of the ways you can learn. So, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I am going to give us some news, and then I'm going to ask pe- ask you where people can find you. So hang in there for just a second because we want to thank our patrons. We want to thank our Master of Dungeon supporters, our Master of Realm supporters. In our show notes, we give you a thanks. And our Masters of the Multiverse, well, you're going to hear right now about Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna, I don't know how to say, Simone Say, 
Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you so much. You can become a supporter of the show by going to patreon.com slash master, excuse me, mastering D&D. You can also find us on YouTube if you want to see Mike and my beautiful face. Mike, where can people find you and your work out there on the internet? You can find all of my stuff at slyflourish.com. You can join my newsletter, subscribe to my podcast, watch my videos, join my Patreon, or buy a book all at the same website. Sweet. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin until the site implodes. You can follow the podcast at Mastering D&D. Happened happened a couple days ago, apparently. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Mastering D&D on Twitter as well. Uh, Also Mastering D&D on Mastodon at Dice Camp. Better yet, just join our Patreon. And you can ask us questions and join our community. We have the Discord server where we have incredible discussions each and every day. And then you can also leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Mike, we have just recorded a show. What are we going to do now? We're going to build some awesome monsters and TPK some adventurers. Using Forge of Foes. Oh, yeah, using Forge of Foes. Where Rock else? on. <laughs>